Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want more info on the things we're doing, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. Well, here we go. Alex and Chris at it again. How's it going? Just like the good old days in the youth ministry class at TIU. That was 2011, right? That 2010, long, long 2011, maybe 2012. Yeah. We were kindred spirits as far as student ministry went. There you go. That was. And then yeah. someone said, hey, do you know anybody that wants a job for student ministry? I'm like, I have a guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you. I remember that class. You did a Prezi. Remember those? Yeah, those were awesome. I know, and I, I was like, that is the craziest thing <laughs> I've ever seen. And I used them a couple times. And then that I know. You know, honestly, I used them in the class, and I used them probably for a couple more youth groups after that. And then the kids were like, these are dumb. And I'm like, all right, never using it again. So they were just so hard to make. They were like you would spend so much time. They were. Like a, five minute presentation i know they were it was a lot of work prezi but they were cool and they they could paint a picture for you in a way that others couldn't but the kids thought they were dumb so i dumped it so we got two topics that we're going to dig into today we're really looking at mark 14 and the specific passage for us is 43 through 65 because we're going to have like what is it five podcasts on mark 14 or, or or six so we're There's in a lot that happens in there in is. 14. Well, it's the last couple chapters is all, you know, moving toward this crucifixion. There's so much going on. So Mark 14, 43 through 65 is the passage we're kind of de- dealing with as far as what we preached. And the, some of the bonus material that we, we could always go in so much more depth with some things in a sermon, but some of the things just aren't as helpful, but they might be fun for a podcast. And so that's what just a reminder to you, the listener, that's what we're doing here. And so, we want to spend a couple minutes just talking about the idea of I am, the name of God, right? Yahweh or Yahweh, depending on whether you're German or not. Uh, did you ever have Van Gemmeren? In, in any? I did not. Yeah, he, he taught a class on Psalms that I loved, but he's always like, Yahweh, Yahweh. And I'm like, I've never heard it. I, I just had, I was at Trinity for a very interesting three years. He had just retired. Oh. And that was the three years that Van Hooser was not at Trinity. He was right. at Trinity. Right. Then he left and went to Wheaton for the exact three years that I was at Trinity. And then as soon as I left, he came back. Yeah. It's like, thanks. That's where it was a benefit that I was there for seven years. So. <laughs> 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 well, that, people go to I, I should say that was seven years. I should say that was the first round of seven years. Now I'm up to what nine years for the the doctor. But anyway, so we we talk about Yahweh. This first of all, as I mentioned in the sermon, Ehia Asher Ehia is what God says to Moses in, in Exodus thir- three, and then He shortens that f- that frame because the word Ehia could be delineated into Yahweh, mm-hmm. right? That So there, that may not make sense to the listener, but if you saw it in Hebrew, you'd go, oh, okay. It's just sort of a, it's sort of like moving from I I come to this thing or I came to this thing. That simple change of, of tense, you watch the words start to change and it gets even crazier when you're thinking of certain words, you know what I'm right. saying? Let me, let me just read it quick because I'm yeah, there. Go for it. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Right. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, which 
is all caps there, so it's Yahweh mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yeah. So that first I am who I am is Echia Asher Echia, and the second one is, is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And then when you see the word, yeah, the word Lord there, turns into the word Adonai, which means Lord, because they're just trying to like wipe his name from it because right, the, he's turns, so holy. But yeah. turns into Adonai just means pronounced Adonai. Correct. It's still written as I am. Correct. Yeah, that's good. So so you've got this character uh, who is the character of all characters, the one who created all things, the the being who doesn't need anything, right? The I, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be sort of suggests that he's above everything, he's beyond it, he doesn't need anything, doesn't need anyone, uh, he doesn't you know, necessarily respond to someone calling him a different name because it doesn't change who he is, you know what I'm saying? If mm-hmm. someone said God's a murderer, they can call him all that they want, it doesn't change who he is, whereas if someone called you a murderer, you know, you may not be a murderer, but we'd have to defend that and figure that out. Right. Whereas God is so far above all of it that his name never changes, his character never changes, who he is never changes. He just is who he is. He doesn't need anything. So that name is so holy and so important that when Jesus says it in his trial, <laughs> when they say, are you the Christ? And he responds in the text that we have is ego a me. But as I mentioned in the sermon, it's very possible he's saying to this in, to them in Hebrew. So if, you're, if you've already got in your mind that this is a name you never say, right? Instead of saying Yahweh, you say Adonai. You never say the name because you're afraid of using it in vain. You're afraid of, you know, uh, misappropriating it in some way. Here you've got God uh, himself standing in front of you. You ask him, are you the Christ? And he responds with Yahweh. Yeah. And they all freak out. Yeah. And then they tear their robes. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy in the Jewish mindset how important the name of God is because it's given this way, you know, to Moses. Mm-hmm. This is my name forever. It's also interesting how it says, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Like, I'm to be remembered by this name, but then in protecting the name, it's no longer used of him. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is so important to the Jewish mindset. Even today, I remember one of my Hebrew professors who grew up in Israel or lived in Israel for a while talked about how when. You know how we have SpaghettiOs with all the letters? Yeah. Like alphabet soup? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like they had a they had a hard time dealing with like, do we make SpaghettiOs because you could accidentally spell the name of God in your SpaghettiOs or in right. your alphabet soup? And so they ended up just not make One of the letters has, you know, two parts that are disconnected. So sure. they're like, well, we just can't make it because it's disconnected. Yeah. So the, the hey. But like that's how important this is. Even Hebrew people sometimes, or Israel uh, Israelites will sometimes, Jewish people say uh, Hashem, which means the mm-hmm. name. The name. To refer to God, they'll just say the name. And that's another way to like protect that name. So that's how important it is to protect that name. And then Jesus has no problem. He's done it a couple times. Mm-hmm. I'm, Mark 8, right? He does. Mm-hmm. Is it Mark 8 or is it John 8? I don't know. What is what is the one where before Abraham was born? I that's am. John. That's yep. John. Yep. John 8. Um, anyways, so he's used it in history, yeah. in his history, but then, you know, here at his trial before the high priest, this mm-hmm. is Jewish trial, no problem, like I am. Totally. And there's a lot written about this. He uses it seven times in the book of John. He says, I am this, that, or the other, right? I am the way, the truth, and life. Right. Before Abraham was, I am. There's a lot of discussion in scholarship about whether those other six I am's are actually intentional or if it's just sort of like a play on words 
I would suggest it probably is intentional, e- even if it's just John making sure that the statement is used this way to sort of link back. Because John seems to be doing that a lot anyway, right? You've got the beginning. In the beginning, that sounds very close to Genesis 1. So it wouldn't surprise me if John's making connections to the Old Testament again and again and again and making sure that the I am idea is there. Mm-hmm. But when Jesus says this, I think when I read John f- or Mark 14 for the first time, and I thought, I'm talking about years ago, and I was like, why are they so mad? <laughs> then now that I know what I know, I go, I'm almost positive he is using that name. Oh, yeah. He's got to be. Otherwise, they would never get this mad. So him just saying, I am, would make them mad. But if him saying, I am, using God's name, would be even crazier. And the reason, back to what you were saying, the reason why they are so, they they revere the name so much is because they've been told, do not use the name in vain or, or, or hold the name in vain would be another way to say that in, in the Ten Commandments. Right. So they were so afraid of, of using the name incorrectly, they just never used it, which is interesting. And it kind of shows the difference between Judaism and Christianity. And, and I'm not separating them in a, in a way that some people might think I am. I'm just saying the, the Christian understands that God has made a relationship with him through Christ that the understanding the Jews had of some of these things was wrong, mm-hmm. right? They didn't need to revere the name so much they never used it. The idea was that they would use it, but think through why they're using it and just never use it in vain. So even back to the SpaghettiOs illustration, which is a great, like I, I, I've, I've always loved that story. Uh, and a hay is really hard to create in SpaghettiOs anyway, so I totally understand why it's easy to do that. But there's this idea that it's almost like fine china. Like, I'm, I don't want to break it, so I'm never going to use it. And, right. And that's like, that's not the God of the universe. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He's he's wanting to walk in the cool of the garden with you, but right. that's been broken through sin. So now if you honestly believe in your sin that you can't say his name ever, that's messed up. Yeah, it's like that hedge around the, you know, this. I know this is wrong, so I'm not even going to get near it. Mm-hmm. Can be helpful in, in situations, you know. I'm not even going to go to that place. I'm not even going to be with those friends. But... Also, if you hedge everything, you create so many rules around it that you don't interact with the good things around it. So with with the name of God, if you're you're so you're you're not focused on the relationship you have with God, you're focused on just following this rule that is meant to meant to mm-hmm. influence your relationship. And instead you say, Well, we're not even gonna have that type of relationship, so I don't do the wrong thing in the relationship. It's you know, like I don't know. It's it's just not the right understanding of what the name of God is, and so Jesus is willing to use it here. And not only that, but he he does say I am, and he says, and you will see the Son of Man, like another a Daniel title, totally. and coming right hand of power, coming down the clouds, like he's invoking mm-hmm. Daniel. Which that also makes me think when he says I am, he's using the name of God, like he's yep. stringing it all together. And then the high priest just goes nuts, right? Tears his tears his clothes. You've heard his blasphemy. He, he ought to die. Yeah. Which, as we mentioned in the sermon, the great the great irony of ironies here is then, okay, he's put to death for blasphemy, but it's not blasphemy because he actually is who he says he is. It's almost like this amazing, I don't want to say it's a trap that God sets, but God sets this all in motion, and then there's no problem with them putting him to death because in their mind, they're following the rules. But by following the rules in their mind perfectly, they actually kill the one that's going to save them yeah it's an amazing which which ironically then thereby accomplishes the rescue that they need exactly for thinking that they follow the rules and don't need rescue yeah Uh, you know i'm i'm coming up with uh mark 15 
this coming week here. Yeah. And it's just irony upon irony. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's it's ironic and it's amazing. And you you read it and you look at it and you go, this is just just awesome. There's a lot going on. Uh, and you know, we could go into detail here with the the name of God, some of the cultural aspects of. Yeah, but I think I want to save that for a much later date because we're gonna we've got some stuff coming down the pipe later on that might be interesting to play with some of that. Uh, even talking about like the origin of where Yahweh might have come from and some of the other myths that are happening in the region. But like I said, we'll save that. the The other aspect of the crucifixion that we don't talk about maybe enough in the evangelical church, but there's a lot of scholarship dealing with the idea of Judas, and there's almost sort of a sympathetic viewpoint of him in scholarship these days. And so let's just interact with Judas for a little bit. What do we know about Judas, first of all? Well, not a lot, actually. Right. Right. We have this name Judas Iscariot, which there's some interesting thoughts about where that comes from, if that's, like, what what is that trying to identify? Is that a family name or is right. that a, a location, like a geographic name? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you have? You got some thoughts on Iscariot, right? Yeah, there's four... There's, I'm, this, I'm pulling this from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. I'm just scrolling down as we talk. But the the term Iscariot has nine different possible interpretations. That's coming from a guy named Schwartz who wrote an article in 1988. And they fall into four main groups. One would be that Iscariot comes from the Sakari, which are these dagger-wielding uh, assassins. They're sort of like the zealot party. So it's possible that Judas is from the zealots and he's one of the Sakari. And if that's the case, they might be making some kind of connection to Judas the Sakari, right? Mm-hmm. Judas Iscariot. You can see the connection there. Others have said maybe um, the term derived from Sakar, which is a Hebrew word that designates the word false one. So it's possible that right away as a Hebrew, you're reading the word Iscariot and you're going, oh, this is a false person. We shouldn't be paying attention to this. Uh, there, there's some something there to think about. Who knows if that's true? The third big category would be that it designates the very deed that he does. Uh, the word sakar in an, another delineation of it means deliverer uh, or to be captured and handed over. So it's possible that because that he's a betrayer, that this word iscariot means he's the one that's handing over, the one that's betraying, or the one that's delivering someone to someone. Like mm-hmm. the word deliverer there could be seen as like the one who saves. No, the deliverer here would be like, I'm taking my friend and delivering him to the authorities uh, to get rid of him. So that'd be the third one. And the fourth one is this back, the one that you mentioned, the, the hometown. It could be a family name. Or it could be that he's from the the village of uh, Keriot, which is in Judea, and if he's from Keriot, there's possible that they would they would have called the people from Keriot, uh, you know, Iscariots or mm-hmm. people from there, which Keriot is in Judea, which is interesting then that Judas would start to follow Jesus at any point, because most of his ministry happens in Galilee, and we have very few things that happen in Jerusalem, especially in the book of Mark, until the very end, right? There's this, all of a sudden, there's this huge ramp up in the last couple chapters of this all happens in Jerusalem. So there's some discussion, did Jesus go to Jerusalem three times for Passover or something like that? That's part of the reason why people think he had three-year long ministry. It's part of, you know, the whole discussion of how many times did he go to Jerusalem? Uh, John also gives us this indication that he probably goes there during the, the Feast of Booths, because uh, he stands up in the courtyard and says, I have living water, come drink from me. Mm-hmm. So that's possibly four trips to Jerusalem plus the one you know where he's uh, 
well, a circumcised, I guess it'd be five and then six would be his time that he's left in the temple. But who knows? They probably went every year. So all we have record in the gospel is maybe those those four or five trips in his life, but we probably he probably went more. But then you go, okay, so what, what point did Jesus go to Jer- Jerusalem or Judea? And then all of a sudden this guy named Judas snaps up and joins him. And almost everyone agrees he's from the Judea area. So right. that's what we know about the name and some of the location of him, but not much else. Yeah. And so we don't have a, a good picture. And but we do know that he followed Jesus. Like he was one of the 12. Mm-hmm. He was one of the closest. And I, I think it's interesting if you've watched The Chosen, The Chosen makes him a likable and optimistic character. Mm-hmm. And I know The Chosen got a lot of backlash for that because obviously Jesus is the villain, one of the villains in the story. But I think that's actually more than likely a good representation of him because this guy was following Jesus. Like if you were around him, there's no way this guy had a hard heart at every moment. And there's, there's an interesting thought and this is just a thought. So you can't, you can't pound the pulpit and say, we know this is true. But if, if Judas is sympathetic to Jesus, it's, you look at, you, you ask the question, why would he betray Jesus. Right. The, the sum of the thought is, well, he was just greedy, right? Uh, I think it's John tells us, you know, he was the keeper yep. of the money bag. He used to steal out of the money bag. So there's like greed. It seems though that the motivation of greed seems a little bit light as far as what would you do to betray your friend right. just for a bunch of money? And it wasn't, you know, like 30 pieces of silver was a good amount of money, but it wasn't like millions of dollars, right? No. So why would he then just decide one day, hey, I need a little bit of cash. I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm going to turn him over to the chief priest. And so there's this thought out there that if he, if Iscariot is that Sakari group mm-hmm. and he is sympathetic to Jesus, but also has these political leanings that are like fight Rome, right. push the envelope, be active, be aggressive. Right. There's a thought that potentially... What Judas was doing in the turning over of Jesus was Judas fully believed that Jesus was Messiah, but his version, Judas's version of Messiah was political and right. military rescuer from right. Rome. And since Jesus for three years has not really been doing that. And then he goes into Jerusalem and he, he clears the temple, but he has no interactions with the Romans, right? He's not really pushing on the political tension between the Romans. He's really just pushing on the, the Pharisees. And so there's a thought that maybe what Judas thought would happen here is he was going to push the envelope. He was going to sure. be aggressive and force the hand of Jesus because he knew that by getting Jesus arrested, that that would be an opportunity for the religious leaders to put him before the political leaders. Right. And so Judas is thinking, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make the kingdom come now. I'm going to bring this war right now because Jesus isn't doing it. So by doing this little betrayal thing, Mm -hmm. I'm going to make some things happen, expecting that then Jesus, once he gets arrested, would be like, okay, now I'm going to reveal my ultimate plan. Now I'm going to bring the kingdom. Now we're going to lead the uprising. Sure. So, well, obviously, you know, that doesn't happen that's why Judas is so distraught because here he thought he was going to make Jesus become this political ruler mm-hmm. and and Jesus went the opposite way and ended up dying and so that's where the despair comes from it's an interesting thought and i think it it gives a little bit more depth to maybe what was happening sure but 
scripture doesn't like spell that all out. So we right. can't say for sure that's what was was going on. And and with any argument like that, and and neither one of us necessarily hold to it. It's a possibility. We just right. don't we don't know. So we're just bringing it up here because it's a podcast. And it's what we do. But I want you, I want the listener to hear how many ifs there were in that. You have to go this here, 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 and then all of a sudden you get to a spot where it's like, well, this makes a lot of sense then. The issues, some of the arguments maybe against it and why the Chosen got some of the backlash they did is Judas is not given a positive view from the disciples throughout the Gospels. Now, some of that might be them looking back at things, but him them saying things like he stole from the money bag, like you mentioned, right. that suggests that there's something else going on with Judas. There's the the line that he Satan entered him, and then he went out. So you could make the case that Satan entering him is for him to take it into his own hands, and that's that's very biblical, right? Mm-hmm. And him taking it into his own hands would be him forcing Jesus's hand. That's one possibility. Another possibility would be he was just angry to hear that Jesus was going to die, right? Because that's mm-hmm. he leaves right after that. Because Jesus says, she anointed me for burial. And he might be like, no, you're not supposed to die. That's not how this goes. And so he might have a different theological version of of Jesus in his mind going, well, let me see if I can stop that Mm -hmm. by handing him over. Which, again, sort of plays into this idea of, you know, he knows the Messiah is capable of calling upon the angels to stop this. Right. He might be trying to force the end times, which doesn't play into the church at all because we don't ever try to force the end times and make it fit our analogy and what we want, do we? That, that has that never, never happened. happens, right? Uh, I mean, I've heard people say for years, we should reach we should reach these nations because once we reach the nations, then all of a sudden Jesus will come back. And that, that feels weird because it feels like we're just doing something without God's approval. <laughs> oh, I've, I've heard people that talk about like, we need to destroy the Dome of the Rock so that... Sure so that we can build the temple there so Jesus can return. People that right. believe that physical temple needs to be there. Like yep. the U.S. needs to intervene and destroy that. Sure. You know, but yeah, like you say, you know, Matthew chapter 10, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, mm-hmm. who betrayed him? Like there's yep. all these hints. Yep. Like there's no, uh, you know, Mark chapter 3 introducing the dis- disciples and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? Mm-hmm. Uh even Mark 14, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelves, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. Luke 6, Judas, the son of Dame, or Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Like right. every gospel, right. when they're mentioned, John chapter 6, he spoke of he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Yep. Like every gospel does not leave a mystery Mm-mm. as to who Judas is and what he's going to do at right. the beginning. It's not like you get to the end, you're like, what? It's It's right at the beginning. Hey, by the way, here are all the disciples and Judas, the one who's going to betray Jesus. Right. And they, and it, to be fair, back to our point, they don't know that yet at the time that right. that is written, but they know it at the time that they're writing it. Do you know, like, I said that right. weird, but they, they don't know that at the time that they are, they are talking about the event at, during the event that they're writing about, they don't know that he's going to betray Jesus until much later. So, you know, I could make the case, the reason why there's a sympathetic viewpoint for him is they probably were sympathetic for him. I mean, we have Peter leaning over, asking John to ask Jesus who's going to betray him at the Last Supper. So it's even clear in that moment that Peter's like, which one of us is it going to be? None of them thought it was going to be Judas. Right. So there's this there's this clear indication here that the disciples thought Jesus or Judas was just one of the 12 and that he's with Jesus, everything's great. 
so when he does this as a surprise, but then they want to make sure that the right the reader knows. No, he, the, the, be careful with this name because this is the guy that's going to come back at you, which I think is interesting. But again, we don't have a lot of details about him. And and if I was a gospel writer, I wouldn't put a lot of details about Judas in any way. Right. Why, why would you want people to know who he is and where he comes from? Right. That's such a good point at the Last Supper because they're they're all sitting there and Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. And they they don't all be like, yeah, Jesus, we know it's Judas. Like, right. Yeah. You know, they're they're looking around like, is it I? Am I the one? Yeah. You know, and they spent a lot of time with Judas. Yep. Like he was one of the 12 and Jesus was often gathering the 12. So Judas, Judas would have been right there. They would have throughout the whole time with Judas had no idea. Mm-hmm. So if they had no idea, what does that tell us about how Judas interacted with them yeah. all along? Probably, yeah. you know, in a sympathetic is the wrong word, but but he probably was bought into what Jesus was saying, yeah. or at least surface level was, or wrestled with it. He wasn't like the clear outlier that's like always in the back. Right you know, making right. things hard on them. And they're like, ah, oh, Judas, again, Judas, again, Judas, again. So right. when Jesus is like, hey, when are you going to betray me? They're like, we know. No, they're like, who is it? It could Peter. Yeah. Peter. Peter sees everyone on the same line as himself. He's like, right. is it me? Go, go ask him. I want to make sure it's right. not me. Well, and then there's two other things in that meal too. The fact that Jesus is eating with Judas, because he says the one that I've dipped my hand with, means Judas is either, you know, the chief guest or the, number two guest at the dinner. So Judas is like a high-ranking disciple to some extent, mm-hmm. which is just a few weeks after Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So it's possible he's just snaking his way in there because he's mm-hmm. like, oh, sweet. I'm going to move my way up now because it's time to do that. That's possible. you know. And then the other piece is Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, go do it now. And even in the Gospels, it says that some of the disciples looked at each other and didn't know what he was talking about. So even as Judas gets up, they don't know that he's going to betray him. They're thinking maybe he's going to go get something else for the meal. Maybe there's a cake coming or something. I don't know. <laughs> the cake part is a joke. Yeah. But but so with that said, part of why we're bringing this up is we don't know a lot about Judas, but there's some good scholarship happening that makes you start to go, maybe there's more to the story than we realize. I've always been somewhat sympathetic to Judas because there are Old Testament passages that talk about someone betraying Jesus. And in some sense, Judas is fulfilling those. That's not to say that our sin is, you know, sort of stamped by God in approval. That's not saying that we're supposed to be like, oh, I'm just doing this because God told me I'm supposed to do it. No. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that that this plan all comes together exactly the way God wants it to. Satan is the one who enters Judas to some extent. Because what I mean by that is it says that he entered him. The question is, is that a full possession? Is that some type of massive mental change? Mm-hmm. Is there some kind of block that happens with Judas where no longer is he able to hear the Holy Spirit for a little bit? I don't know. I don't have any answers there. But whatever happens to him, he suddenly becomes a totally different person and goes and does something terrible. But we hear the terrible thing, and then we think he's terrible all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to just say this sort of as a, a sense to close this idea. Part of the reason why I want to talk about this and bring it up and why we just did that is there are people in ministry who fail us, right? There, mm-hmm. I've had people in my life that have, have served alongside me or people that I look up to who all of a sudden I find out there's a news story about them and I think there's no way that's true. And then you find out later, nope, it's not only true, but it's worse than we thought it was, mm-hmm. right? We both had friends that have you know, some of them are in jail now and we've had yeah. to deal with like the consequences of students coming to us going, what do we do with that? Or, or church people asking questions. Stories are way more complicated than we want them to be. 
we would like everything to be really simple. But I think we need to, we as individuals need to pursue Jesus with everything we've got and let him fill in the details. If we're struggling with sin, we've got to talk to somebody. We've got to work this through. I wonder if this story would have been different if Judas would have said, hey, Jesus, I'm really struggling with what you just said. Like, mm-hmm. What do I do with that? Yeah. And I like that idea. I, that's almost the better takeaway to me of what to do with Judas. At the end of the day, every one of us is potentially a failure. And we are, we are just as capable of doing horrendous things to people as anybody else around us. Mm-hmm. Right? So when I hear about somebody doing something terrible with, you know, whether it's children or whether it's something with, you know, um, I don't know. I'm just leaving that blank. You, you picked your worst possible sin in your mind. When you find out somebody's been doing that, it's really hard for us, but we need to remember every one of us is just as close to that as we as we would like to not be, right? But faithful walking with Jesus, confession of our sin, walking through that with people who we love, having accountability partners, things like that, are all ways to ward off that, going back to your hedge point that you brought up a little while ago. We can build hedges around things, but it still doesn't really stop the heart issue. We've got a bigger, deeper issue going on. And Judas never does that. And I wish more of us did. And when someone fails you in ministry, it doesn't mean that that everything's false. It doesn't mean you need to run away from everything. It means somebody fell and they have fallen apart. And at that moment, my request of you would be, why don't you pray for them? Why don't you spend some time trying to see what you can do about restoring their image in your mind and and helping them restore their life because it's the most broken place they can possibly be. Yeah, it's just a verse that I often remind myself of as a believer and also as a pastor is 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the NIV when I memorized it. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Mm -hmm. Like both those things. We can't just be good at knowing the head level. Like watch your life closely because sin is always there. It's always, always crouching. It is. And I think one of the interesting thoughts that I read on this was, would Jesus maybe be covering him with the intercessory prayer of forgive him for he doesn't know what he's doing? Mm. Interesting. Yeah.